You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening from around the world. This is the F 11 photography podcast. I'm your host, Kevin deal along with your other host, Mr. Brandon Gorey. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the F11 Photography Podcast. Yes, welcome <laughs> to episode number 45. Wow, we're already there. It's been it's been over a year. We've been doing this for over a year. Uh, No, January. No, January. Oh, mm. Not quite a year, 10 months. But what's interesting is I was reminded by how many episodes we have because people like go and try to sell us things. Like I, I get people who end up in my, uh, in my emails like, Hey, we can, you know, enhance your pod and blah, 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 blah. We see you're 44 episodes in and now we're at 45. Anyway, I'm just like, okay, whatever. I just, it's all junk. It actually ends up in my spam filter. Uh, I'm sure you get a couple of those every now and then too, because there's two emails at the bottom of our, our, our page. But, uh, yeah, 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 I can, yeah, I get a couple. I get, you know, I think Brandon's lying. I mix it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I got and I got so some dude slid into my DMs the other day and was like, "I want to work with you." <laughs> There's a connotation of the phrase "slid into my DMs" that's sexual, and so when you say a dude slid into my DMs, it's I'm old. It means something different to me. I'm like I'm like that fucking insurance commercial where it's like sliding into the DM sounds fun. <laughs> All right, so this dude ended up reaching out to me via DM. Is that better? Millennial, absolutely. Or are you are you Gen are you Gen Z? I I'm, can't remember. I'm right in between. All right, yeah, I'm right in. I'm I'm technically Generation X. I missed being a millennial by like six months. So, which is fine because you know boomers hate millennials and I don't have to worry about being lumped into their category. But anyway, so this guy reached out to me via DM. Is that better? <laughs> yes. All right. He's like, hey, I want to work with you. I was like, cool. Uh, let's work together. And we started hashing out, uh, how many looks he wanted to do price and all that. I was giving him all my rates. I was like, cool. So we're going to do two looks in the studio and a look, uh, at a park near my studio. Here's my address. He's like, Oh, you're in Austin. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Why would I be in Portland, Oregon? And so uh, through a little bit of conversation with him, uh, that model um, that you know, Alyssa, who moved to Portland, uh, she just moved there and she's been tagging some of our collaborative shoots as being in Portland, even though they occurred in Austin. And so I guess somebody saw our shoot and assumed that I was based in Portland, despite the fact that it says in my motherfucking bio that I am Austin based. So uh, if you're listening to this pod and uh, and you're going to take one thing out of this pod, it's read the fucking bio of the person that you reach out to that you want to work with and see where they're located. Might be something to think about. Amen. Amen. Today's sponsor is 
what is today's sponsor? Luminar Neo. Harness the power of artificial intelligence with Luminar Neo. Uh, AI is not just a buzzword. It is actually a tool that can help you out. And Luminar Neo just came out with their own generative fill, by the way. It just hit the markets. Uh, they also have really good things like Relight, where you can shift the light in the front of your scene if you have a backlit subject and you want to just light up the front of your scene like you had a flash there but you left your flash at home. You can use the relight module to do that. It has a really good slider that allows you to balance your relight. You have the ability to erase things out of a scene. So if you have a really beautiful landscape and there's power lines there, you can do the power line remo removal. If you have some national park where it has a gorgeous view, but you see like the ranger's house over there, you can just use the erase tool. It'll fill it in with trees and all that fun stuff. Uh, you, can, you can see things as Ansel Adams saw them before they all got uh, destroyed by man-made structures. And uh, so, yes, Luminar Neo has some really beautiful modules. Go check them out. Use the code Kevin10 or use the link in the description of this pod and you can get 10% off your copy of Luminar Neo today. Speaking of today, we're going to have a conversation about what is in our camera bags? Because we talk about equipment a lot on this uh, pod in addition to uh, philosophy and philosophical ways that we want to uh, approach photography and all that. Uh, but I've never really, we've never really had a conversation where we talk about what is in our bags, how we put everything together, why we put certain things in, in our bags, maybe uh, things that we plan for in case there's failure. And so that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. And I am going to just go through my bag first and I'll let Brandon respond with what's in his bag. Absolutely. I think that's a good, good format. I, so I just want to show you guys my bag. Yeah. Let me see my bag, bro. So, uh, coming up, I'm going to talk about what is in my photography bag. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. All right, we're back. And First, I'm going to start off with what is in my portrait bag because I have many different bags because I shoot portraiture. I shoot weddings. I go on vacation sometimes. Sometimes I go shoot on the street versus in a studio. Uh, sometimes I shoot film, right? I'm a film photographer. Brandon's a film photographer. And so what is in your bag will vary based off of the format you shoot in, the type of photography that you're shooting uh how long you're going to be gone, what your logistics are of how much equipment you can actually take with you if you're on some, something like vacation. I, I can already tell it's going to be a very, very serious episode because you say you have a bag for your portraits. <laughs> for different types of portraits. Oh my, okay. I'm going to take a back seat on this one. <laughs> yes. So, oh man. So for my portraits, if I have a commercial gig that is, that is booked and Nailing focus is my number one priority. I'm immediately going to beeline for my Canon R5. That's going to be my main camera. I need reliability. I need something that is easy to edit, which Canon files tends to be. And for my lenses, I tend to take an RF 28 to 70 F2 uh, because they don't make a 35 prime. And 28 to 70 really covers me for a lot of different things. But I also take a 85 millimeter and I'll take, uh, if it's uh, a commercial outdoor shoot, not a studio shoot, I may swap the 85 for a 135 because I have more space to breathe. So I'll use my my 135, and then usually in the studio, I'll take my 85. Uh, I also don't like to shoot wide open with my 85 outdoors because it's so fucking bright that uh, it actually blows out highlights, and so you have to use an ND filter on it. So you can't really shoot at 1.2 outdoors with it uh, unless it's a cloudy day. 
And then every now and then I'll take an RF 14 to 35 with me. If I want like super ultra wide stuff, I'm trying to get a weird, unique angle. And then I'll take my R7 with me as a backup camera uh, in case my primary R5 fails. I've never had that happen, but if I'm getting paid to do a commercial shoot, I have to have redundancy. And so that's what I take with me on a commercial shoot where autofocus is important. Now, for my personal work, that changes. I actually very rarely nowadays shoot Canon for my personal work uh, because I can take my time, I can live with my misses and things like that, and I'm trying to squeeze out every last bit of detail and get an aesthetic, an aesthetic that I'm trying to nail. And I find that Fuji does that for me better than Canon does. And so if it's a, if it's personal work, uh, and some personal work bleeds over into commercial work, uh, sometimes I'm shooting a test shoot for a model for an agency, and it's kind of a, a bleed over, uh, I still will shoot with my Fuji GFX 100S. And, you know, I will, you'll hear a recurring theme in all my portraiture, which is that I pretty much shoot, uh, the full frame equivalent. Cause this is medium format. Uh, I, I shoot 35, 50 and 85. Those are like my three prime focal lengths because 35 is slightly wider than a normal field of view. It tells a story. 50 is my normal field of view. And then 85 is my tight portrait shot. Unless I'm outdoors, in which case sometimes, like I said, I will do something that's at 135. If I have something that kind of equals that focal length, uh, whether it's uh, medium formats, uh, full frame or APS-C. And so on my Fuji GFX, 45 millimeter, which is the equivalent of 35, 63, which is the equivalent of 50, and then 110, which is about 90, 85, somewhere in there. Those are my three lenses that I love. And uh, I actually have those three lenses in my bag right now to go do a shoot with an agency after this recording of this pod. And I'm doing some personal editorial type work. And that's what I love my Fuji GFX for. Now, I have variations of other lenses. I have a Mitocon 65 1.4. I have a 35 to 70 zoom. That's kind of a darker zoom. I can only really use it uh, with bright strobes or outdoors. But I love using my Fuji GFX 100S for uh, my editorial type stuff. And then as my backup, I will bring a... Uh, a, I don't, I don't always bring a backup for my, my personal work. I actually very, I usually bring a second camera really to record like uh, behind the scenes and stuff, but I will put like a, a, a zoom lens on it to where if, like I did have a camera go down. It's like, okay, I can still do a session with this camera and I'm good. And so I'll use my Fuji X-H2 for that. And then speaking of my X-H2, if I have a, an outdoor portrait session, if I'm doing like, you know, a street wear or something, and we're just like out downtown and I don't really want to take a bunch of shit with me, I will go all the way to my APS-C Fuji X-H2. I have what's called a 17 to 70 for those of you who aren't hip to a crop factor. That's basically a 24 to 105 in the full frame world, but it's a 2.8. And then in the full frame world, they only have a four. So being able to have a 17 to 70 2.8 that can basically see very wide to telephoto is pretty badass. And then uh, I also bring sometimes if I decide to go on a prime kick, I'll take a 23 1.4, which is the equivalent of a 35. I'll take a 56 1.4, which is the equivalent of an 85. And then I'll take a 75 1.2, uh, which is a Viltrox, which is about 112. It gives me a little longer. It's good for outdoor stuff. Very tiny lenses. That's one of the beautiful things about Fuji for portraiture. And Brandon looks like he wants to talk. I wanted to. Well, I... You... <laughs> For for the listeners' sake, you you you're you're rattling off all this equipment, and it's like it's intense, and you've got it like dialed in. You've got it like second nature. You know what's going on. You know your equipment. You know who shot John, essentially. Now, let's uh, what differentiates you know for those listening, like what differentiates what you bring for your just general run of the mill studio shoot versus your general run of the mill outdoor shoot. 
So what I went through just a second ago is kind of like that is what I take to every like. So the Fuji GFX is uh, usually what I take to a studio shoot that or the Canon. I don't shoot a ton of stuff with the Fuji X-H2 in the studio. Uh, I usually use that for more portable type stuff like street street shoots where I'm taking a model out in the streets and all that. And so the lenses that I just talked about uh, in general are what I will take to a studio shoot. So I'm doing a studio shoot after this and I'm taking, like I said, my Fuji, what the equivalent of a 35, a 50 and an 85 R that's what I'm taking with me. I'm taking those three prime lenses and that's all I'm taking with me to the studio shoot. Now, obviously I will take a trigger with me and, uh, I have my lights. And so I'm, I have all my pro photo lights that I'm taking with me as well, uh, to this shoot. And uh, that, that, that changes as well. So I have different lighting setups for different scenarios. So I have my pro photo lights and sometimes my Godox lights, uh, I'm using them less and less. I'm using more pro photo these days in the studio, but if I'm on location, uh, so in our, in our episode where we talked about YouTubers, we had a guy named Marcus picks that we talked about and he always, he's obsessed with finding the smallest, best solutions for off camera flash. And his, I, I more or less copy his setup because his setup's amazing. As much as I love my pro photo gear, as much as I love my Godox gear, there's one light that is now my primary go-to for location shoots, and it is the Godox or Flashpoint 8100 or Evolve 100. They're the exact same light. doesn't matter which one you get. It's a tiny little light that's the size of a Coke can, and it has magnets on the front of it. And so there's another uh, modifier made by a company named Angler, and it's an Angler softbox. You can get it for about $120, $130. It's a 28-inch softbox, and with a single push of a button, it completely expands out, and then it has a hole on the back, and you can just snap your lights to the back of it, and it has a pistol grip, and you can just walk around. You can do really cool uh, you know, location stuff with it, put it on a stand. If you have an assistant, they can hold it right up. That is my new off-camera flash location lighting setup. And to take things further, I said that there's a magnet on the back. Well, that's the magnet of the softbox and that connects your light to it. There's also a magnet on the front of your light that goes through the softbox. And you can actually use uh, color temperature, uh, CTO, CT blue, um, CTB, CTO, and CTG magnetic gels to offset uh, the color of your environment to the color of your flash. So if you have, uh, you know, overcast and it's very cool color temperature and you're hitting somebody with a daylight balanced flash, it's not going to look right. And so you put a CTB gel on the front, you just snap it to the front of that little Coke can size light and you're rocking and rolling and your white balance is, is, is totally covered. So that is my, it, it sounds elaborate, but it's actually really simple. It's a, it's a light, it's a softbox and a, and a, uh, a gel that snaps on the front. That's my that's my off-camera flash setup for location shoots. That sounds like an incredibly modular system. Like just like just like snap, 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 like like Lego light basically. Yeah, and the nice thing is is you can leave the light attached to the back of it. You can leave the magnet attached to the front of the light with the, the CT gel, and then you can collapse it and put it away. My my major question is like the first question off the bat is like, okay, this light's the size of a Coke can. Can it rival midday sun? Yes. At well, one meter. At wow, reliable. One meter, yeah. So wow. it can do the full body. So that was, that's why I love that. That's why I plugged Marcus Picks, that guy uh, who shows you how to uh, sell, th- you know, get get lights for for cheap that do a good job. At one meter, at full power, uh, it will 
slightly overpower the sun to the point where it's a good shot. Now, if you're trying to hit somebody from 10 feet away, it's not going to do that. You're going to need a probably a 500 watt second light to do that because of the inverse square law. But uh, the, really the only thing I would typically do, uh, what I would use it for is I just want to light up somebody from three quarters or tighter and I can do that from a meter away and the light won't be in the shot. So that's well, totally fine. Plus you probably be shooting anywhere like closer to golden hour or morning where the light's not going to be that intense. You, you don't need to shoot full power Yeah, or you can, or you can take them into the shade and use, I mean, if it's daylight, you don't even have to use a color temperature correction gel. You can just keep it at its native, you know, just hit them with the light and the light will be daylight balanced. It's daylight outside. Yeah. They're in the shade, but now you just hit them with light. They, they match the scene. And so that's what's in my bag. And the reason I put that 8100 in my bag is it's fucking tiny. It's smaller than a lens. It's it's smaller than a speed light. It's tiny. And and so and the battery like full power, I think it gets like 3 or 400 hits on it before it goes out. And I you know, I I don't take more than usually 200 250 shots a session. And I very rarely will do a session outdoors where all of the shots have flash. I'll find a situation especially from downtown. I like to use buildings as reflections, which by the way, that's a pro tip. If you don't have a flash, you know, people say don't shoot in the middle of the day. That's bullshit. You can shoot in, in broad daylight. You can use the reflections of uh, sky, you know, uh, skyscrapers, and they create these gigantic soft boxes of reflectivity, and it makes your subject look amazing. And you can do it at 11 a.m., you know, 1 p.m., 2 p.m. So that is absolute bullshit. Uh, but yes, that is absolutely essential that I have that that flash in my in my bag now. Now, if I have a little bit more room, I'll take my Pro Photo B10 with me because it's two and a half times stronger than that, that tiny light. And if I need to really shoot some, some light, it'll get the job done. I can get it done at like 20 feet or, you know, maybe 10 feet, something like that. And so, uh, that, that, that's what I take in my bag and, um, pro photo makes a tiny little hockey puck, uh, um, trigger. Cause I don't like big triggers. Like I, I hate, like I, I, my Godox triggers are nice, but I actually like the ones that have a flatter profile versus the one that have like the 45 degree screen that goes up. I just think it's too bulky and too tall. I don't want it to be tall. My pro photo triggers are just these tiny little hockey pucks that, that, that go in. And then you control the flash from your phone. So I can just go into the app, log into the flash and then move it up and down, which is really cool. So yeah, it looks like you've got a lot of a lot of gear and you've got a lot of stuff going on um, to help people visualize it. Is this a one bag thing? Is this a two bag thing? Like you're driving to the studio, you're driving to location. Now, granted, in our studio we are sitting among all of our all of our equipment here, which there's a lot. But say you're driving to a new studio, you're driving to on location. Is this can you fit all this into one camera bag or is it a two? One, always one. So uh, I have my bag out, uh, ready to go for my studio shoot later. It's got the GFX 100, the GF 45, the GF 63 and the GF 110 in it. And it also has my Canon R7 in it. Cause I'm going to be filming some behind the scenes. Now I technically have a second bag today because I'm testing a light for newer. Uh, newer was kind enough to let me, uh, check out, I think it's called the MS 60 C, which is a RGBW, uh, video light, which I'm testing out today. So I have two bags for that. And also because I'm bringing, um, this is, I'm actually going to a different studio today. So I'm bringing several bags. I'm bringing three bags. I'm bringing a bag with my pro photo B10 in it. I'm bringing a bag with my pro photo uh, B1 in it. And then I have my bag for my, uh, my, my camera and all that. So if I'm coming to my own studio, I only bring one bag. If I'm going on a location shoot, I only bring one bag every now and then I'll bring a tiny sling bag to bring my B10 in. 
if I have too much equipment, but I never, ever, ever take more than one bag and one sling bag. Now, if I'm doing a trip like to New York City, like you did in the last episode, yeah, I'm probably going to bring a Pelican case and other stuff and it'll have, it'll be a little bit more involved. But, uh, over time I've actually like tried to narrow things down, make things smaller, which is one of the reasons why I jumped onto the Fuji X-H2, the whole Fuji X system, is because it's so small because it's built around an APS-C sensor. So the lenses are essentially a third to half the size of Canon and Nikon lenses, but they're still 1.4 lenses for the maximum aperture. Some of them are 1.2 lenses for the maximum aperture. And the results in well-lit situations are indistinguishable from full frame, Really, the only time APS-C rears its ugly head is in super low lighting situations. If you're shooting in a back alley and it's super dark and you're having to hit high ISOs, that's really the only time people are like, oh shit, you shoot on an APS-C. And then the other time is like really crazy dynamic range situations where it's like, oh, I'm going to underexpose my subject like four stops in order to preserve the highlights of the sky. And then you try to pull up the the shadows. You're going to fuck yourself. You got to just let some of those, those highlights blow out and preserve the skin tones on an APS-C if it's like 2 PM or something like that. But in general, you really can't tell the difference between them. And for like 85, 90% of my work, if I shoot it on an APS-C or a full frame, no one's going to tell the difference. Of course, people can almost always tell when I shoot on my GFX still, because that motherfucker has some dynamic range out the whiz ass. You were going to say something? Oh, I was just like, I love watch. I love looking at your shots on the, the Fuji GFX because the amount of like, you're, you're a big color guy and you can squeeze a lot of color into that dynamic range and you, you, you grade your shots really well. In fact, I don't think this was shot on the Fuji GFX, but you did that. Um, oh no, what, what was, it wasn't ectochrome, but it was that, co- was it Kodachrome where you did that sort of like Kodachrome with the Russian model? Yeah, that was, that was the GFX. Oh yeah, Dude, so I loved so, those shots. So, so the way I graded that, so Kodak, uh, I'm sorry, Kodak, Fuji has, uh, Fuji has film simulations, and they have one called uh, Classic Chrome. But I went into the dark part of the, uh, I, I, I lifted up the blacks in my uh, curves. I, I made it to where there was nothing that was completely black there to emulate the look of film, and I did a little bit more tweaking out with my curves. And yeah, I mean, it looks. Like I have a project I want to do, a passion project I want to do. Um, and the hard part is, is getting makeup artists to do this because you were, you were t- remarking in the episode uh, on New York City that good makeup, good makeup artists are hard to find. Well, makeup artists that want to, that, that I need to do what I want to do for this passion project are going to be damn near impossible to find because back in the 1940s and 50s, when they would shoot celebrities in Hollywood with Kodachrome, Kodachrome had these weird color shifts that happened and they had to train the makeup artists to know how to tint people's skin and they would make up, they would you know, pancake their face perfectly to where their faces look like porcelain, but they would have to get the color right. So the film would capture their skin tones correctly. And so you'd see these pictures of like, uh, Judy Garland's and like, you know, Cary Grant's and, you know, uh, Kirk Douglas and people like that. And you just see these freaking amazing shots of them. They're damn near impossible to recreate. And so there's a, there's a passion project I want to do. I want to do it all in medium format and go find some expired Kodachrome, uh, and, and just try to like get a makeup artist to redo these faces. And I, I, I just want to do a whole project on Kodachrome. And it's like, yeah, nobody can really recreate this nowadays. I got to find it. It's probably gonna be so expensive too. Yeah. Good luck with that, dude. Jeez. Well, well, okay. Like just, you know, to play devil, like I'll buy, I'll buy it. 
what what's the tint? Is it like a greenish tint? Is it like a purplish, like a magenta tint? Like what like what kind of where are they leaning? Well, it 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 depends on which film stock because they it, Kodachrome has evolved over the years, and I'm still and I'm still I'm not fully done studying exactly how everything is. I just, you know, know that there are some tints that happen. I want to say that it shifts a little magenta. And so, uh, but like one tiny little fraction off and it just throws, I mean, like the latitude wasn't a, apparently that great. And so it was like, everything had to align right. And, and you know, in order to nail these shots, but when you see the shots, like I have a book, I should have brought it in and maybe I'll just do a whole, whole episode on it, but I have a book. It's just Hollywood and Kodachrome. That's the fucking book. And it's nothing but celebrity portraits taken with the best cameras in the world, the best photographers in the world. Everything's lit up uh, with paramount lighting or, uh, you know, all everything's lit up with a Fresnel and just absolutely gorgeous. Everything's hard lighting, but their skin looks smooth because they knew how to do everything right. So, uh, well, you know, I can go off on a tangent forever on Kodachrome, but thank you for the compliment on that. I love my Fuji GFX. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here in a moment, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, what I use for my vacation, street, and weddings. Hi, this is Ethan Tran, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk about what I use for street photography. I have the Fuji X-H2. Um, I am starting to shift what I have for street photography. So I like to do slightly wider than the normal field of view. And so I'm going to, uh, I mainly use the 23 millimeter, which is their equivalent of a 35, but I just recently purchased a pancake lens, which is coming in, uh, tomorrow. Actually, it's going to be an 18 millimeter F2. And that is the equivalent of basically a 28. So I have a 28 and a 35. And then I use a, uh, I use a 56, which is an 85 equivalent. And those are my three lenses I like to use for street because sometimes I like to get a little closer. And so I actually, uh, that is a, a pro tip is try using something that's the equivalent of an 85 millimeter for street photography, because it has just this gorgeous photojournalistic look to it. And, and so that's what I like to use for street. Obviously I use Fuji because it's tiny and I use a smaller bag. Like I can take my entire street photography kit for Fuji in my backpack. And it weighs as much as like my R5 with one lens on it. Like that's how, how light Fuji is. And that's why I love shooting on Fuji so much. Real, real quick. I did want to ask, um, I know you're a guy who doesn't like to leave much to chance. So what's, what's the level of redundancy you have in your bag? I know you always carry two cameras. You mentioned that on a previous episode. Well, so, so I, I carry two cameras. I would carry two cameras less if I didn't have a YouTube channel. But because I have a YouTube channel, when I plan, I'm usually doing something for my YouTube channel when I shoot. And so I'll, I'll usually bring like a wide angle lens with my second camera. And then I'll bring like a zoom lens. And the zoom lens is always like there to just get creative shots for video. But it's also there in case like my primary camera dies and it's like, oh shit, I have to make this happen. You know, my, my Fuji 17 to 70, which is a 24 to 105 f 2.8, uh, equivalent that could be used for a studio session that could be used for street photography. Uh, as a matter of fact, I did a review of that lens on my YouTube channel and I show that it does really great for street photography for, uh, for portrait sessions and for, um, and for studio because 24 to 105 is like, that's pretty much 99% of what I shoot right there. That covers everything. And the fact that it has a maximum aperture of 2.8 and the lens only weighs a pound that's pretty fucking awesome. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to take my Fuji camera with me on a lot of shoots. However, on shoots that have my Canon, I take my uh, R7. And of course, if my R5 dies, 
I have all the RF lenses already. I just put them on the R7. I just have to take into account that I have a 1.6 crop factor. As a matter of fact, I taught a class on uh, lighting here in the studio. And for whatever reason, I had to capture one update and my Canon R5 was not tethering. Like it was not showing up. And it was like five minutes before the whole thing started. This is last week. My, my R5 was not communicating with Capture One. And I was like, I don't have time to download the update. I don't have time to d- update the profile. All I did was I grabbed my R7. I plugged it into uh, Capture One. And it's like, cool, your R7 is tethered. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to, in my head, because I have a 1.6 crop factor on this, I'm just going to shift my focal lanes back. I'm going to use slightly wider lenses to achieve. So I'm going to use a 50 millimeter to get an 85 millimeter look. And that's what I'm going to do while I, while I teach today. And that's what I did. And so that redundancy uh, saved my ass, especially when you're charging people $250 a head to, you know, do a photography class. And it's like, fuck, my camera just died. I have to cancel the class. That saved my ass having redundancy. I mean, a week ago, I I had redundancy saved my ass. So, um, but uh, you were going to say something? No, I was just, I was just thinking what you're saying all this. I'm like, wow, like, like the, 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 the necessity of redundancy is is extremely apparent and I'm, I'm someone who doesn't rely on redundancy uh very much so and it's it's probably higher risk and so just just hearing that like <laughs> you know i'd be the i'd be the guy saying like all right hold on um what we're gonna do is we're gonna start at this cafe that's where we're gonna start the class because it's it's more difficult light and it'll be easier to work with more difficult light um before going outside and then you know we go to the cafe and i'd say like all right like go go, go shoot this flower and then i'd just be like fucking connected to the wi-fi I'd be like all right let's download this update <laughs> like that's how i would handle that situation well, i would say that it's not you know the the probability that you're going to have a camera go out is tiny and my r5 itself has redundant cards so even then like i mean i have very very small odds that my camera is going to die but if it dies i'm talking about like maybe the motherboard goes out doesn't matter if you have redundant cards if your camera is a fucking you know doorstop and so (laughs) and so to me like i i measure like if it's a personal shoot and i'm going out and i'm you know model and i are going out in the streets and shooting a lot of times i'll just take one camera with me because there is such a low risk of anything going wrong and if there is i'm working with somebody who is not a piece of shit human being and has understanding that things go wrong um so i don't typically take them in that case but if people are paying me yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure that i have redundancy um no uh no field of uh, photography in my opinion is greater um uh, on that uh the risk reward factor than wedding photography and so i'm gonna talk to you about what's in my wedding bag when i go shoot weddings i have my canon r5 I shoot my 28 to 70 for the ceremony because 28 millimeters is 70. You can pretty much cover you for anything. And that lens is an F2. So I can get an extra stop of light in uh, shallow depth of field. I can get a little better subject isolation, which is what sells wedding albums, you know, versus a 2.8 lens. You're not going to get as much separation, especially at those wider, uh, wider focal lengths. And so I'll use that for the ceremony. For the couple's portraits, I'll use a 51.2 and an 85 1.2 because oftentimes they don't want a lot of environment. They want more isolation because they're looking into each other's eyes and you're trying to draw them into them being in, lo- in love and all that in those in those couple's portraits. So I'll use a 50 to 85. So right there, I'm at three lenses. Can I can I just yeah, go ahead. ask you a quick question? Um, how do you, like, at what depth, what aperture do you shoot couples when you're using a 1.2 lens? Do you do, you do four to get the whole thing or like what? You know? I, I shoot couples at 1.2. I just stand back. Yeah. And just, it's, it's physics. So like I can, I, if I get them on the, on the same focal plane, like let's say I have a profile shot of the groom and the bride looking into each other's eyes, getting ready to kiss each other. They're on the same focal plane. So if I'm 20 feet back from them on an 85, my camera still gets pretty close to them. Cause I'm, you know, I'm using an 85, but they are razor sharp. 
um, and they are in focus, and then everything about behind them is completely liquefied. Now, oftentimes I will stop down to like F2 or something like that if it's if I do need to get more of the dress or something like that, but if it's just their eyes locking into one another and they're super close and they're about to kiss, I can hit that shot at 1.2 all day. That's another reason why I shoot on a 50 megapixel camera because I can get even further back and crop it if I need to. And so um, that's why I shoot on the R5. So you know, sometimes people have that question of what's in your bag? How many megapixels is enough? Well, I shot a wedding... I had this really beautiful shot uh, of the bride walking down the aisle with the 28 to 70. I was probably 35 feet away from the groom. I shot it at 70 millimeters and F2. The bride was probably about 10 feet in front of me and the groom was about 30 feet in front of me. And so having that 28 millimeter, I got this really quick and I was the only shooter for the wedding. There was no second shooter. So I had to be really on my shit. So I get a, I get a wide angle shot of the bride, a perfect third off to my left walking by me at 28 millimeters F2. And then I immediately zoom into F um, I'm sorry. I immediately zoom into 70 millimeter with her in the left part of the frame, completely out of focus at F2. And I get the groom's reaction to seeing her for the first time walking down the aisle but even then, uh, at 70 millimeters, she was kind of far away from me, and it wasn't exactly the way I wanted to frame the shot, so I had to crop it. That is why having a 50 megapixel camera is good. And then people bitch about, oh, that 2870 f2 is such a, a big lens, but it's because it goes to f2. And what sold that shot is despite the fact that she was uh, starting to get far away from me, because I shot that shot of the groom at f2, he was razor fucking sharp and she was still way thrown out of focus despite the fact that she was several feet away from me now. And um, that's the beautiful thing about having a shallow depth of field is it helps tell a story. It helps isolate things when you need it to. And then of course, if you want to stop down, you just zoom out and boom, it hits like a 24 to 70, you know, you're shooting at five, six or F eight or whatever. And so that is why for my wedding bag, the 28 to 70 is my workhorse lens, the F two, it'll, it absolutely can get me through a ceremony. If I want to be super lazy and not bring a ultra wide for the dance floor, I've used the 28 to 70 out on the dance floor for the reception. Now I tend to use a 14 to 35 on the dance floor F4, which by the way, I don't care that it's an F4 and the dance floors are dark because typically at a reception, you're using a speed light. So I could be shooting at F11 in there and that speed lights popping at full, you know, full uh, power. It can get everybody in focus. It can capture the scene. I tend to shoot more at like F5.6, F8 on the dance floor. And then I just have my speed light just hammer, you know, at full power. And I take a shot about every two, two and a half seconds. And um, yeah, that's what I do with that. So the 14 to 35 is in my wedding bag uh, along with my 20 to 70. Those are usually the only two zooms I take. Like a lot of photographers are like, oh, you need a 70 to 200. I personally don't take one. Um, I do take a second camera body. I take a RF 135 F 1.8 and I put it on my R7, which is a crop. So it's basically a 200 millimeter. So basically I have 28 to 70. I have 14 to 35 and then I have uh, 135, uh, 1.8. And that's, that's, those are the three lenses I'll usually use during uh, all the parts of a wedding that are not the couple's portraits. Now, when it's the couple's portraits, I anything goes. I can use my 28, 70, my 14, and 35, my 50, my 85, and my 135. And I take all those lenses with me to a wedding. I leave nothing to chance at a wedding because you're trying to sell albums. Uh, you can get sued if you fuck up. And so you need every angle you can possibly get. 
you don't want to be in a situation where it's like, oh, I can't do it because I left this at home. I don't fucking do that with weddings, especially considering that any self-respecting photographer who charges a price that's going to have a comma in it, if you're charging that much, you bring all your fucking lenses. If you're charging even a thousand, now you should be charging more than a thousand for a wedding. You should be charging several thousand for a wedding, at least, uh, even if you're getting started. Like it's a lot of work. So philosophically speaking, when, when you're engaged in a shoot where money is being handed, there's going to be a transaction. You approach your camera bag, not, not from a means of necessity, not from a means of what gets the job done. You approach the situation and you approach your camera bag by way of margin. How do I maximize and efficiently optimize how much margin I have? And what do I mean by margin? I'm talking about margin in megapixels to, to give you crop ability. I'm talking about margin in lenses so that you can get the shot. You can get the shallow depth of field and that separation if you want to, if mm-hmm. you want to. Yes. And I would take it a step further. It's not just where money's exchanging hands. It's anything that could be a por- anything that could lead to money exchanging hands. Cause sometimes I shoot personal work that ends up leading to work that pays. And if I need to make, you know, if it's like a once in a lifetime thing, or it's like a very, you know, the train is on the tracks type of thing. I'm capturing some moment at sunset and I just need it to be perfect. Uh, I need to make sure that I have redundancy there too. So and if, if you know that you're going to use three batteries, bring five. That yeah. I typically, I typically can get through I very rarely have to change batteries and I don't use a battery grip by the way. That's one way I shed weight. I've never needed a battery grip. The only reason I would ever use a battery grip is for the grip part of it to have a bigger, uh, bigger physical camera to hold on to. Because honestly, how long does it take to change a battery? Hit the door, pull it out, put a new battery in, click. That's how long it takes to change a battery. That's not that big of a deal. I've shot entire weddings where I've only had to change the battery once a whole day because I don't take a lot of shots. I don't take 2,500 shots like everybody else does. Um, I take less shots because if you're good at your job, you should be able to do it in less shots. Um, but anyway, yeah, that is what I do. I do bring extra batteries. Something that I haven't been doing lately that I probably do need to do is I do need to bring designated backup SD cards. Uh, I, I haven't been doing that. I've been lazy about that. I was going to ask you about that. Do yeah. as I do as I say, not as I do. Um, so I do that uh, on vacation. I tend to just bring as few lenses as possible because yeah. in all honesty, unless you're, unless the point of your vacation is photography, I have been on vacations where it's like, I'm going to shoot landscapes. You know, it was like when Brandon went to New York, the point of his vacation to New York was to shoot photography. Okay. We're well, going to bring your fucking heavy hitter lenses for that. But if I'm going somewhere with my family and going to the beach at Port Aransas, a 24 to 105 F4 is perfectly fine for outdoor shit in the middle of the day. Or if I really want to be small, I'll bring that Fuji 17 to 72.8 because I get that extra stop of light and I have a smaller camera body and a smaller, smaller lens. Um, I will also sometimes on vacation, uh, to shoot street photography on my Canon, I'll bring the RF 35 1.8, which is a badass street photography lens. Maybe I'll bring the RF 50. Maybe I'll bring the RF 16. They're all very tiny pancake lenses, but that's it. Like I don't, like, uh, I don't really take anything longer than 105 on vacation usually. Um, if I do need to go longer than 105 on my R5, the R5 actually has a crop mode where it just uses part of the sensor and it just takes your 105 and turns it into like a 170. And yeah, it ends up being a 17 megapixel file versus a 50 megapixel file, but it's your fucking vacation photos. They're going to go on Facebook. You can take a eight megapixel file and make it look good on Facebook. So, you know what, you know what I love? I'm, I'm going to stop the train real quick is I love going from, you know, on, on the topic of vacation, I love using all the photographic discipline 
that, that we learn through our jobs and, and our, our, our necessities and putting projects together, just learning all that about our equipment. I love taking that knowledge and just, just like, like without pressure, applying it to just family vacations. Just like being with the family and taking photos of them, composing, and just using your ridiculous, overpriced, like like way too good of equipment to shoot such, you know, willy nilly, just meaningful photos. I find it just so peaceful. You know, yeah, it's such a wonderful thing. Yeah, and vacation, it's like I love taking pictures of things, but nothing beats memories. Um, uh, we'll say one final thing on vacation. If I'm not doing Canon, if I am doing Fuji, I will take two lenses with me. I will take a 17 to 70, which is the equivalent of a 24 to 105. And I will take a 70 to 300, which is the equivalent of a 105 to a 450. So I, I'm covered from, from 24 to 450 with two lenses on vacation. That's all you fucking need. And then maybe, maybe if I go to a museum or somewhere with dark, dark, uh, you know, like very dark, uh, ambience, I might take my 20, three millimeter 1.4, which is like a pancake street photography lens, three lenses. That's it. That's all I'm going to take on vacation. And with it being Fuji, all of that takes up as much space as like my 28 to 70 on a Canon and, yeah. and, and, and less weight. It's like four pounds for the whole kit. How do you, I, I'm curious. Cause I love the, I love the topic of vacation photography. I don't think we've talked about this. Um, how do you like, like what? Okay. I'll start when I'm in, on vacation, I'm with my family and I know I'm capturing memories. Like I usually just go down to like the, the widest open aperture. I want the most buttery, imperfect, you know, I want to capture it. Like it's a memory. Like I'm not super worried about the composition. I'm, I'm really just letting my subconscious and my second nature of photography take over and I'm just shooting black and white or I'm shooting regular color and I'm just kind of just, you know, just very ease. Like, is there a certain way that you notice that you just tend to shoot? Is there a certain profile? Is there a certain just like depth? Is there a certain lens? You know, I like, I like the 1.8 on an 85 because it just isolates, you know, what I'm seeing. It just pulls me into that tunnel of memory so well. I mean, I don't know. Like I do know that when I'm on vacation, I shoot more relaxed. I'm less stressed. Whereas if I'm, you know, working with a model, it's like I'm working to build something for my book or their book or the agency needs something for their book. I have this very one track mind. I have my blinders on. I'm really in my shit. And I don't have that when I'm on vacation. And so sometimes it allows me to see things that I can't see when I have my blinders on because I'm fucking blinded, right? It's the whole point of blinders. And so it's a, it's a little more of a carefree style of shooting, I would say. And yeah, I just, I see the world a little differently. I, I don't know. I, I find that I don't focus on my settings as much when I just shoot on vacation. I will like set it. It's like, Oh, it's daytime. All right. I'll set it at F eight and I'll just like zoom in on things and shoot. And you know, I, I uh, sometimes I'll even put my camera in uh, auto ISO outdoors and just like, well, I'll notice maybe if it's overexposing, I'll uh, do the exposure compensation down a stop or something. And I'm like, all right, cool. ISO is about where I want it. I'm not even going to think about my, my ISO. It's going to, I'm just going to shoot and enjoy myself. And so that's part of the reason why uh, I like shooting on the Fuji cameras with the film simulations. It's just super fun and go on vacation and just, you know, we, I, I, you know, I, I mix, I mean, I'm, I'm always like mixing though. Like I, I, t I talk a big game about reducing my camera bag, but I also tend to use vacations as an excuse to shoot YouTube. <laughs> Cause it's like, it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm in Las Vegas right now. So it'd be pretty fucking cool to do a, an episode on, because like I went, I went with my wife to uh, Vegas for WPPI and I was like, what would be a weird 
episode to do. And I, I have a 600 millimeter Canon lens that I got. I, I still haven't even released the episode, but I filmed it when I was there. I was like, I told, I told my wife, I was like, film me shooting street photography on the strip with a fucking 600 millimeter bazooka. <laughs> and so I did it. And like, so, so I, you know, even, even when I'm on vacation, I talk a big game about relaxing, but I, I, I tend to work in something for my YouTube episode. I always, I always, I like designate one off the wall lens or one off the wall thing I want to do. It's like, I will bring a second camera body because I'm going to do a review of this camera body. Or I'm going to do a review of this lens while I'm on vacation. But I try to have discipline of just, just choose one. Don't bring like seven things to do episodes on. Cause you're on vacation, you know, carve out, carve out 30 minutes to talk to the camera during your vacation, get your talking points together, nail it, get a little bit of B roll of you using it. And then I also have this thing from Exune called the SEMO. Uh, I take, you're talking about what's in my bag. So when I shoot for YouTube, I like to show what's going on inside my camera. And before the SEMO Axoon came out, I had to bring a fucking Atomos Ninja with me with Sony NP batteries. And like that thing on its own weighs as much as my fucking camera. And so now it was like my camera bag was so heavy and so bulky. And what the, the cool thing about the Axoon is that it's like half the size of a coffee cup, maybe a third the size of a coffee cup. And it just goes on to your... Um, it just goes onto your hot shoe and you pull up this little stand thing and you put your phone in there and it clamps to your phone and then it uses an HDMI cable to your camera and then a lightning to USB-C cable. And, and with your phone, you can record everything out of your camera, what's going on inside your camera at 1080p to your Axoon and it just saves in your photos. And so when I get home, I just airdrop all my videos of me, you know, recording what I'm using. And of course you're going to take your camera with you on vacation. So you already have your monitor with you. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, as long as you're cool with it being 1080p, I just take that 1080p footage. I upscale it to my 4k. Everything records at, you know, 30 frames per second. It all syncs up. It's just, you know, bigger, bigger file. But honestly, if you're looking at what's going on inside somebody's camera, you're not looking for 4k 60 frames per second, amazing footage. Anyway, you just want to see what their settings are and how the autofocus is working. Cause that's all I'm doing with that. So Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about what is in Brandon's bag. Hey, this is Vanessa Joy, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. All right, we are back. Uh, I spent 45 minutes rambling on on what's in my bag. Uh, Brandon will probably spend a third of that amount of time because he is much more of a minimalist than I am, but I am still equally curious as to what is in his bag as to probably he is in what is my bag. I don't even know if that was a real word or a sentence that I just put together there. That was a jumbling of words, but Brandon is going to talk about what is in his bags right now. So I said, I said bags, plural. I meant bag because he's a minimalist. <laughs> I've got a big bag. I'm sorry. Okay. I want to. I, okay. I want to start by saying that my camera bag situation is often chaos. Um, I'll tell you what. Like some. Like there are times because a lot of camera bags are modular, and so is mine with the Velcro. There have been times where I've actually situated the Velcro to make a little pocket for my athletic greens, my Advil, and my my supplements. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why that makes me laugh. It's so stupid because I'm big. I believe in supplements, and if I if I take like an ashwagandha, you know, thing with L-theanine and like some alpha GPC, it really gets me in the zone and helps me enter flow. And um, 
it's just it's just it's ridiculous but anywho for a shoot if i'm going to shoot a lot of my shoots are very similar um i work out of the same studio that kevin works out of and so oftentimes i'll leave my triggers my my tether cables um extra batteries and stuff like that i will actually uh leave here from time to time uh not all that stuff is in my bag um it's it's here so when i when i get here i just pull it out from the the, the office and then we're good to go but in terms of bag is I've been steering away from a camera bag these days. Um, I get too tempted to leave stupid shit in the bag. Uh, cause often when I do shoots, I'm, I'm traveling with props. I'm traveling with extra film. I've got like little knickknacks, little, little doodads here and there. I don't know why I picture you. Like you say, I'm traveling with props. I, I picture you traveling with like Mr. Rogers, uh, puppets or something like getting the model <laughs> smile model, Marionettes. Come on, smile, smile, <laughs> laugh, laugh. That's sick and twisted, <laughs> Kevin. I don't know. I don't know why you see me that way, but I can't help it. Oh my goodness. That's something, that's something I do just, just for shits and giggles. Um, but no, for, for a studio shoot, uh, I don't bring, um, a bag anymore. Uh, mostly because the camera bags I have right now are not suited for how much equipment I've grown to have. And I don't feel like spending the appropriate amount of money on a bigger bag. Uh, I don't like how flimsy it is. It's just, I don't know, like the bag thing, it's annoying. Uh, I've, I've got like seven bags in my apartment and it's just like, like more bags is like, I love bags. I don't need another one. So I got a Pelican case instead. And it came with a foam. And in that Pelican case is my minimal setup. Um, it's got two tiers of foam. It's got a top layer and a bottom layer. The bottom layer is reserved for my, uh, my Mamiya 645 1000S because oftentimes I find that if I'm going to shoot film, I'm going to shoot it on my Mamiya because it's it's just so close to like an SLR's usability that I find it easy to transport. It's not the lightest thing, not the heaviest thing, but I can shoot pretty quickly on it. I know it inside and out. It's got, an, it's got a prism. It's got an automatic like uh, shutter or aperture priority rather. And it's just, it's just very easy. Apart from that, I have a space for my Z8 body. Um, I've got space for three lenses, uh, three digital lenses, which are often, um, it's just my trifecta. I don't have a, a crazy array of lenses like Kevin does. Uh, Kevin has a very, very impressive array of lenses and he is very, uh, very purpose-driven, very deliberate in his shoots. I, I plan to be deliberate in my shoots, but I always like to have the options to experiment if I need to. Sometimes uh, an idea will catch me and I'll need to use the 14 to 35 F4 that's in my bag. Um, other times, you know, I'll find that like, cause I use a 24 to 70 in my bag as well. And sometimes I'll find that, okay, the 70, it's a telephoto lens, it's an F4. All right, it doesn't go super shallow. And I also know that the quality drop off at 70 millimeters for any telephoto lens is like the highest quality drop off is going to be at 70 millimeters. So if I want to retain that quality and I want that that nice sharpness, I'll just switch to the Viltrox 1.8. Is it the sharpest lens in the world? Absolutely not, but it is noticeably more efficient um, both in its compression, its depth of field, and its uh, its quality compared to the 70. I imagine any lens looks good on a Z8. Go on. Thank you. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, so yeah, studio shoots are pretty, just pretty purpose driven. I bring a very basic setup, my trigger, um, my just regular Godox trigger that, that pairs with all the, all the flashes that uh, we use here. Um, I'll, I'll bring what I just mentioned in my Pelican case. I've got the tether set up in the office, the trigger set up in the office, and we have extra C stands, modifiers and lights in the office as well. I, ha I do have my own strobe at home. I rarely ever use it because I don't use 
well, I, I won't say that. I'm not in the creative season of using off-camera flash in environmental uh, photos or portraits. Interesting. I'm, I'm evolving back into it. I was doing a bunch of natural light. Now I'm like, because I talked about my angler setup, I'm going all in on off-camera flash now. I'd, I'd be, I'm really interested to see how that comes out because I know you're going to be using CTO well, and CTV you can, gels. You can use the exact same setup I have. You can borrow it because you have the Godox Nikon triggers. So that's the only missing component. You own it. Yeah. So you could try it sometime and see if you like it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing like uh, sunset flash portraits and stuff like that. <laughs> like that one guy, uh, I forget his name, Manny. No, no, Man, no, I'm not not Manny Ortiz, but I forget the guy's name. He just does. That's all he does is off camera flash. Yeah, and then he over over retouches his stuff to where it looks fake. But yeah. anyway, frequency separation's a hell of a drug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't talk about my film bag because you you were just talking about yours i actually like you use a pelican case for my mamiya rb67 there's a cutout for the prism finder and all that but the question i have for you because this is what i do if i go shoot knowing that it's an iso 400 day i will bring iso 400 film and i will double and bring 800 film as a backup in case the weather changes i will also if it's a very bright sunny day i will bring iso 100 film and then I'll bring ISO 400 film as a backup in case the clouds start hitting. Do you do you plan that kind of redundancy with film stock, or do you just push your film? Ooh, that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting question. Holy holy guacamole! No, I again being a minimalist, I I look for the film stocks that have a, an insane amount of lateral and really fine grain that I can push. And what are those film stocks? Kodak Gold on 120. It's a new formula. It's an updated technology. You can push the hell out of Kodak Gold on 120 because it's it's a completely it's a very elastic film, and it's it's almost like Portra 400. So I've pushed it to 400. the The quality is insane. the The grain is so like it's almost not there that I see uh, Kodak Gold 200 as an increasingly uh, incredibly versatile film. Also, if you don't like the Kodak Gold look, guess what? It's so versatile that if you're DSLR scanning with a 45 megapixel camera, you can change, you can edit it to look any which way you want it to. It's so elastic. It's almost like taking a digital photo in a way. Do you find when you push gold, it's kind of like a portrait and that it gets more saturated? It very, yeah, very lightly. It's already, it's already a little bit more saturated than portrait to begin with. Uh, it doesn't change too much. Um, I will say if I don't want the saturation, I will push, um, I'll push Kodak pro image because it's incredibly balanced for skin tones. It's meant for wedding photography. That's what it is. It's incredibly fine grain. It's incredibly affordable compared to everything else as well. Kodak gold. If I know I'm able to shoot Kodak gold and push it based on my environment, it's $41 for a five pack. That is like legendary. That's like, okay, I can shoot film again. I can justify this. Same with the pro image. Pro image is like 42, $43 a five pack, whether it's 35 or 120. Well, actually I think it's, I think it's only on 35 to be honest. So, so yeah, again, affordable. Um, uh, Ilford HP five, very, very high lateral, very elastic film. I'll push that to 1600. No problem. I'll push it to 3200 because the look, it can pull off a look that way you can pull it as well. So in terms of film, um, I'm very comfortable. I've pushed all my favorite, uh, fine grain films and I know what they look like. Um, Portra 160, again, I've pushed that to 400. Uh, I pushed that to 400 in San Clemente during golden hour. The colors were insane. Um, it's, it's very natural reproduction. 
and it's very flattering um, for for everyone involved. The co- the hues I will say for skin tones they do lean a bit pink, but it's like if you're shooting you know you can shoot portraits on Ektar and you get the same thing in any case. So it's like you know it you you get what you pay for, but you also use Capture One like you, you should be knowing how to balance skin tones in post in any case. So why do you not shoot with two cameras? That's a gr- <laughs> that's a great question. It's uh. I haven't ever come across an issue where I need to shoot with two cameras and my shooting style is I'm so mobile. I'm so just all over the place that I already don't like being in an environment where I have to drag my camera bag to the other part of the whatever outdoor area that I'm at that just like, just, you know, being the pack mule is, it's, it wears on me. It wears on my creativity, wears on the flow. It's interruptive. I don't like it. And so I'll, I'll do redundancy with batteries. I'll have, I'll have enough batteries to shoot the same shoot three times over. I do SD and CF card redundancy, always making sure I've got that. And I'll do a little bit of lens redundancy. I don't, I really don't have the lenses to do a whole lot of redundancy. I'll just be honest and very minimalist in that nature. Um, but like, okay, I would bring two cameras to a wedding all the live long day. I will bring my Z6 and my Z8. Yeah, to yeah. Well, not just not just for redundancy, but you could also have two very easy to switch to lens choices. So, what I'm going to give you a pro tip because I know you're shooting your first wedding. Double check that the time on your cameras is like synchronized to the second. And the reason why you want to do that is because you can go, oh, I'm going to put like a 135 on my Z6. I'm going to put my 24 to 70 on my Z8. And you can sit there and go, bam, 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 bam. And, and you know, get get one of those like spider holsters and just p- put that bitch on your, sh- on, your, on your hip and then pull out your 135 and get a shot with that. And then when you take everything and you throw it in a capture one. It'll spit out in chronological order your Z, your Z8 shots, you know, that were taken at 8.53 and 35 seconds will be here. And then 8.53 and 52 seconds will be your Z6 shot because it took you 10 seconds. Like it'll all spit out in a timeline and it's easier to edit a wedding in a linear chronological order as the day unfolded, because that's typically how you want to hand stuff off to the couple. Like here is the the pre-ceremony, here's the ceremony. And so if everything happens in its order, what I do is I, I, I go to like my, my settings of my cameras, I put them both on my lap and I get them set up to the same second. And then I just hit enter at the same time. And then boom, they both synchronize up and you're good. Now there may be a way to do it now where they synchronize over the camera app. I think that's starting to become a thing where you can get your cameras to synchronize to your, your phone as far as what time it is. Uh, that's something to look into. I don't know anything about Nikon, but that is a pro tip is that always, you know, I, back when digital cameras came out and it would be like set up time and date. I'd be like, I don't fucking care. And I just scroll right through it and it'd be like, cool. You're taking a shot in the year 1932 at, you know, (laughs) in September 8th. And it's like, you know, 2007 and it's like, you know, whatever, September or something like that. And you're just like, I never even cared about that. But the second you become a, a, an event photographer and you need things that you want to tell stories in a chronological order, you will very quickly learn how, like, Oh, Hey, there's, there's a reason why they have this time and date on my camera. That's million dollar advice. Like just, just playing the metadata to your advantage is such a sleeper move. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. love that. Yeah. Don't be afraid to shoot two cameras at a wedding, not just for redundancy, but for different angles and different, like very 
get very different focal lengths. It also makes you look a lot more professional. Yeah, but but yeah, but when if you sell them a wedding album and they're going through and they see something that was shot at like one thirty five versus twenty four in the same like minute, yeah, in the same, the same minute, seconds. they're gonna go, wow, I really love this shot of us like looking into each other's eyes, you know, giving the vows that we have options here, and so definitely do that. Um, okay. I, I just realized I do bring redundant cards with me, uh, extra cards with me because my second camera has cards in it. So if I, I, if I ever have an issue, I can just pull the camera out of the other car. I pull the, pull the card out of the other camera and put it in. And I've actually had to do that before. And it still saves like everything you shot on that first camera. And so, you know, you just got to, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass when you go into post-production and go, Oh, this shot came from this camera. This shot came from that camera when you're, when you're putting the card in, but the whole chronological order thing, that, that saves your ass there. Cause yeah. you, and of course the metadata is there, but Ooh, go ahead. Go just, ahead. Just one last thing. Uh, we talked about this in a, in a previous episode about like the new Z eight and what, what that was like with the experience. So we talked about how the sand disc cards get extremely hot in the, in the Z eight. Yep. I bought a Delkin 128 gigabyte, uh, CF card in New York and I used it for about half my shoots there. And that card does not get, doesn't even get warm. It's fantastic. That's cool. You'll have, have to show me the model number. You'll see how it works with uh, my R5. So that'd be great. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing before we call it an episode. How many bags do you own? The Okay, working bags that could be used as a camera bag? Yeah. Five. I can't remember if I have more than that or if that's about the same amount. So I want to say that, you know, if you listen to this pod, you're probably like, well, Kevin has a lot of bags because he, you know, all these different situations and all that. That's true of maybe two bags. But the real reason why I own so many bags is I've never found a bag that makes me completely happy. I am so opinionated about what I like about lenses and cameras. And I'm, I'm so sure. And people come to me for advice of what should I buy this? If you ever come to me for advice about which bag to buy, I have no fucking idea because I still can't find a bag that makes me happy. I hate camera bags. I, all of them feel lame. They all feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing my little photo hobby. Like none of them feel serious. None of them feel that way. You know, they all look like camera bags. Like they're not sleek. And like, unless I'm paying like 500 bucks to a thousand bucks for like a heavy duty, like just cool, badass looking camera bag. It just, I just don't like it. They're, they're, they're lames. Yeah. I have, um, so I have all different types, types of camera bags. I have tiny little camera bags that, you know, look like I'm some a uh, chick walking around with a little, little hello kitty backpack or something. I have stuff that small. I have sling bags. I have uh regular size backpacks. I have gigantic backpacks that look like I'm hiking, you know, uh, somewhere majestic. I have a doctor bag, which I can keep like, uh, you know, it kind of opens up as a doctor bag. I keep my, uh, my video rig in there with all the rails and everything. And then, uh, and then I have, uh, I would say the bag that I like the most is a newer bag that's a roller bag. It's just a roller bag for, for luggage. It's just a piece of luggage that has compartments in it, and you can use it as a roller bag, or you can put it uh, on your shoulder. And that bag went with me to Italy in 2019. I took that bag with me uh, to Colorado. I took that bag with me to Las Vegas. I've taken that bag with me into the American Southwest. That is probably my most used bag. It's the bag that I have right outside the door of this studio that is holding my GFX uh, that I'm about to go take to a studio shoot. So I would say that that's probably my favorite bag. There's still things I don't like about it, but uh, I guess the roller bag is probably my favorite hybrid because it's kind of that cross between a Pelican case and a backpack. 
Uh, that's the closest I've gotten to being happy, but I, I just, I, I, I can never be happy with a bag. And if, and if somebody comes out with that perfect bag, I will endorse the fuck out of it on this pod because I still haven't found it yet. I'll, I'll be honest. This is going to make you sick, Kevin. I've got this friendly Swede bag. It's been everywhere. It's been to London, Ukraine, New York twice. It's been quite literally everywhere I've been in the last five, six years. It's fantastic. It's durable. It's got a great build quality. It only has a slide for a laptop and the rest of it is just open cavity. And when I, you know, like, um, if I know I'm just going out for a shoot day and, and like, um, I'm in a new place and it's, it's environmental, I'm not bringing a Pelican. I'm not bringing a camera bag. <laughs> I'm bringing that guy and I'm just wrapping lenses and shirts. There's nothing wrong with that. And that, that's what I like. It's easy. It's simple. It makes sense. It's lightweight. Like it's just, and I'll usually have my camera like slung around my shoulder wherever I'm going as well. Like I won't like keep it in the bag. I travel with the camera out. Whatever works, works. And uh, as somebody who can't find a bag that makes him happy, who would I be to to tell you off for how you like to to roll with your bags? But, but it, we we both seem to enjoy the the sort of pelican case kind of just like concept. Well, I, I do have pelican cases. Like I have a big pelican case in the studio. I have smaller pelican cases at the house. I have a tiny pelican case for my C three thirty. So I have a, an array of pelican cases. But at the end of the day, I still end up favoring bags. But I don't know. I, I'm the I'm the last person in the world you want to go to for that advice because I don't know shit about bags, but I do know what I like to put in my bags. That does it for today's episode. That is episode number 45, the F11, po- the F11 podcast. Go to F11pod.com to check us out for more information. Check out our handle, F11pod on all major platforms. We thank each and every one of you for checking this out. Hopefully we shed some light on what to put inside your camera bag. Uh, We will not give you advice on what bag to get, but we will tell you what to put in your bag. Maybe it'll help you out. But until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.